This is Tomorrow's Bike Podcast, the podcast where Andres and I are diving with stunning guests into their story, challenges and opportunities, all backed by food, allowing us all to get inspired, get more knowledge and grow. And today we talk about out of curiosity, why do you think that cultivated meat is the future? Most cultivated meat companies I speak to, it's not their intention to put traditional farmers out of business. Where they're looking at, you know, how can traditional farming and cultivated meat farming coexist? A lot of the terminology that's being used, so lab-grown synthetic, it, it raises alarm bells sort of immediately because you automatically think that it's something that's not natural. So I think it's, you know, explaining that it's, you know, essentially the same as meat. Key areas that are that are unclear for applicants are I think it's not so great for the consumer because it's kind of, you know, building a wall and they they see that things are approved but they don't understand how it's been approved. We were working around the clock in order to meet that deadline to try and stop, you know, to try and save our clients from falling into the trap of the transparency regulation. Then we were mostly told that a major hurdle is the importance of meat companies and their influences at political level. Have you noticed this during your career so far? Uh... As a four-year-old child, the regulatory space isn't typically a career field one might easily mention aspiring to later in life. However, the food industry cannot live without it, and it holds true importance. Hannah shows precisely how crucial the regulatory field is and highlights the hurdles present in the alternative protein space, focusing deeply on the culture meat scene. So without further ado, I am Andres Antondura. And I am Shago van And this is Tomorrow's Bites. Hello, thank you for coming. And first of all, can you explain our listeners who you are and what mission you are on? Ah, yes. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to join you today. Um, so uh, I'm based in Barcelona, um, just uh, in Catalonia, and um, we help our clients and the industry um, basically build all of the safety data that they need to prove that their novel food or their alternative protein is safe. So it's our mission to really help and support the industry in bringing these amazing products to market as quickly and as efficiently and as safely as possible. We are strong believers that uh, in some way childhood can in some way path the kind of professional that we turn. So we were wondering if this was the case for you. So if there's any moment in, back to your childhood or your youth that has influenced the person that you are today. Oof. So being now in regulatory affairs, it's certainly not something that you set out as a no. four-year-old little girl going, ah, when I grow up, I want to be a regulatory affairs <laughs> consultant. So it's definitely something you kind of uh, accidentally fall into. 
Um, but I was brought up on um, uh, in a very traditional farming uh, family. So my family are farmers. Um, so very come from a very traditional farming background. Um, worked very much. Um, my training is in veterinary and 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 veterinary medicine. Um, so um, in that respect, I was always very much. Uh, seeing food being produced around me, but then also seeing how, um, you know, I could help produce food from looking, you know, from the perspective of looking after the animals, developing veterinary medicines and that kind of thing. So that was more the background that I came in to the industry from. Um, and then when I graduated, um, I was working on veterinary medicine development um, but then got very disillusioned with that because all we were doing was creating uh, and, re- and looking at generic um, veterinary medicines um, that had already been tested many, many times. So we were doing lots of testing on animals that I didn't agree with. And it was also a case of, um, you know, facilitating industrial agriculture um, and, and, you know, developing new medicines for farm animals. So I didn't really feel very comfortable doing that after a certain amount of time. So then um, I got into um, very much by accident um, feed additives, so animal feed additives, and was working on building the safety dossiers for animal feed additives. And again, we were doing a lot of studies um, and again, the feed additives were used mainly in farm production animals. Um, so again, it was supporting the intensive animal uh, agriculture industry. So I didn't feel so comfortable doing that. And then around sort of five years ago, um, or maybe more than that, five to eight years ago, um, I heard about cultivated meat and thought, wow, you know, this is, this is the future. So really, um, did everything I could to learn about um, the technology and then how that would be regulated, how we can demonstrate that it's safe um, and also working on other alternative proteins for use mainly in human food, but also in pet food. So building up that knowledge, trying to work out, um, you know, what the regulators might want to see, how we demonstrate it's safe and then really, um, working with companies to to understand the technology and to yeah to build that safety uh data out of curiosity why do you think that cultivated meat is the future uh i just think it's a way of producing food with less reliance on resources so whether it's land uh water um, you know, it, it has the potential to, you know, really reduce our reliance on, on um, you know, a lot of different things. Um, and also, you have to admit, you know, I, I've, I've been brought up on farms, the farms that I know uh, from my family, you know, the animals are very well <laughs> looked after and, and very much cared for. But, you know, when you go and see um, an intensive broiler farms are where the chickens are grown in 35 days in very uh, close um, and very unpleasant um, environment, then you can see, you know, why wouldn't you be growing this meat in bioreactors rather than subjecting these animals to, you know, to to that kind of environment? Um, So I think it has, 
you know, many, many benefits. Um, I don't want to see traditional agriculture disappear. That's not, you know, I, I, that's not what, that's not my vision for the future. I think the two things can exist uh, and coexist. Um, but it's just, you know, not intensively farming animals in the way that we, that we are today. I believe you mentioned something interesting that a lot of times is in the mind of uh, people that thinks about the culture meat. You, you say that these two things can coexist. How do you believe that they can coexist? So um, there's a lot of work being done by um, uh, Respect Farms, so Ira Van Aylen, um, where they're looking at, you know, how can traditional farming and cultivated meat farming coexist? Um, so I think, you know, that's an amazing project. Um, and it's, a, it's really a shift in how traditional farmers are farming their land. So instead of farming, you know, instead of using the, the land for animals, they could be using the land to grow crops that are then used in the bioproduction of cultivated meat, for example, or they could facilitate repurpose one of their barns or one of their um you know some of their land to build a cultivated meat uh factory on their land so there i think there are many many different uh, ways that farmers can do it um also farmers are incredibly well educated um and they're also you know they're they're already used to very high-tech farm machinery Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a milking machine, a robotic milking machine, but they are just off the chart complicated and, you know, with, with, with all of the programming that you need um, in order to program these robotic milkers. So, you know, farmers are not, um, you know, they're very familiar with high tech equipment. So I think once it becomes available, um, they would definitely be able to work with bioreactors, for example. Can you shed some light on a specific cultural or regional differences in the acceptance and consumption of alternative proteins? And how can companies uh, tailor their approaches to this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really uh, a very complex discussion on many levels. Um, you know, the, 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 the tradition of, of food is so Um, ingrained in all of us, you know, regardless of which country you're from, every country has their traditional uh, cuisine um, that's very important to the identity uh, of the country. So I think it's a way of trying to, you know, to find ways to, to build into that tradition and allow people not to feel threatened that that traditional food is going to be taken away from them. So I think, um, you know, what we're seeing in Italy and in Romania, where they're already trying to ban cultivated meat before it's even been approved as a novel food, that's all ab about, you know, food sovereignty and, and, and the concern that this synthetic food, as it's being termed um, it, by Italy and Romania, is going to replace their traditional food. So I think it's, again, it, it's a lot about, speaking to people like telling people that what cultivated meat is and what it isn't what alternative proteins are and they're not and saying there's a place for all of these things on the markets it's, it's about giving people choice 
um, you know, if they want to continue eating their um, parma ham or, you know, whatever, then, you know, it's not being taken away from them. But there is an alternative that's being produced. And if they want to try it, it's, it's, it's there uh, for them to try. So I think it's a lot about educating people um, about what, yeah, about what cultivated meat is specifically. Um, and, you know, getting, getting that buy-in um, from, from consumers and, and, and other stakeholders as well. And it kind of links back to the whole farm thing, because if farmers and traditional agriculture feel, feel threatened um, by these, this new technology, then obviously they're going to fight very hard for it not to become a reality. We want to move to the regulatory aspects, but before that, I, I believe that it could be interesting since you have mentioned this concern that is growing around uh, culture meat. What what do you think that is, or what myth around a culture meat do you think that is more important to educate the people about? So I think um, a lot of the a lot of the terminology that's being used, so lab grown synthetic, it it raises alarm bells sort of immediately because you automatically think that it's something that's not natural. So I think it's, you know, explaining that it's, you know, essentially the same as meat um, or whatever tissue type you're, you know, you're intending to grow. Um, it's just produced in a different way. So I think it's, you know, really explaining the technology. So it's clear that it isn't, it's not synthetic. Um, there's nothing synthetic about it. It's, you know, it, it's following a natural production process using, um, components that are consumed by the animals themselves um you know in nature so it's it's sort of highlighting what the the production process is i would say how does the regulatory environment differ from cultivated meat versus like other forms of alternative proteins like plant-based or insect-based proteins So, um, I mean, in, in the EU, for example, um, cultivated meat or foods derived from cell culture or tissue culture are already foreseen in the scope of the novel food regulation. So essentially, they all fall under the same regulation and are regulated in the same way. It's more um, that the regulators are more familiar with plant proteins um, because, you know, we've been eating soy and pea protein for a very long time um, and more companies have submitted um, plant protein novel food dossiers um, compared to precision fermentation dossiers um, and cultivated meat dossiers. So I think it's it's all regulated in the same way. There, there's, there's nothing different there. It's just more to do with the regulator's experience. So um, in the EU at the moment, um, yeah, we have many plant proteins that have been approved. Uh, we have quite a few insect proteins that have been approved um, and then some uh, microalgae um, and other sort of microbial biomasses. But at the moment, um, there are just two dossiers that have been submitted for uh, beta-lactoglobulin that's derived from precision fermentation. So Perfect Day have submitted their dossier and Remilk have submitted their dossier but it's still at the very, very early stage of 
the novel food approval process. So the, the dossier has been submitted and it's now under validation by the European Food Safety Authority. So they haven't even started their risk assessment yet. Um, so it's kind of, you know, when it's a, when it's a regulated product or so when it's a novel food that they're not experienced with, then it tends to take them longer to evaluate those dossiers. Um, and as of today, there are no cultivated meat dossiers that have been submitted to the European Commission and EFSA. Can you share some insights into the current regulator regulatory landscape for culture meat, highlighting like the key hurdles and areas where there is a need for clear guidance uh, or standards? Yeah, so um, obviously we've seen um, that uh, cultivated meat has been approved in Singapore and the US. So they're two regions where it is um, approved uh, and, and being placed on the market. But it's only really Singapore that have guidelines um, specifically for cultivated meat. Um, and it's true that, you know, they're very, they're very good. The, the Singapore Food Agency are updating their guidance on a regular basis as and when, uh, you know, new knowledge becomes available to them. Um, in the EU, we have the sort of overarching novel food guidelines, um, that are going to be updated very soon, hopefully with some more information specifically on cultivated meat. Um, but of course, like guidance shouldn't be a cookbook and cultivated meat. Each product is so different um, that it's going to be hard for any regulator to provide specific guidance that covers sort of all scenarios because, you know, cultivated meat, sometimes the cells, you know, all the different cell types, all the different species, and then all the different tissue types that you can, you can get at the other end. So it's very hard to build a guidance that's going to be, uh, you know, very, very clear for applicants on what to do in every situation. Um, but I think really the, the, the key, um, areas that are that are unclear for applicants are what you do in that you know early stages of isolation because there are a lot of components that you're using in early stages of isolation that are definitely not approved for food use but there are, and there are no food grade uh, components available because they're used specifically for cell isolation and adaptation and it's you know it's it's not intended uh, at that stage to be used for food. So I think, you know, how do we deal with the early stages of isolation? I think for, you know, building your master cell bank and working cell bank, then we can, uh, you know, look at good cell culture practice guidelines. There's obviously the guidelines um, uh, for um, biologics. So the ICH guidelines um, that can, you know, contain some useful information. But we have to bear in mind that, you know, we're producing food, not a drug. So, you know, the, the level of testing is not always appropriate for food, as it obviously is for, for um, you know, developing uh, therapeutics. So I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. Um, and then I think really it's Understanding the genetic stability of the of the cell line. So, you know, what are the most appropriate um, tests for 
demonstrating genetic stability from the master cell bank to the end of production. Um, and then also having appropriate methods of analysis for cultivated meat, because, you know, a lot of the methods of analysis um, that we use typically in food may not be validated or appropriate to use in a cell matrix. So I think also, you know, some, some, um, more insights onto what, you know, what, what tests we do have available and then, and then how we apply those to, to cultivated meat. You mentioned something interesting that is actually that there are uh, two geographical areas, we could say, like two countries that have already approved the uh, lab grown meat, uh, at least to sell it to the, to the market. And one is Singapore and the other is the US. And the thing is, Singapore has been, uh, already, I think for three years almost with the lab grown meat, but the US was barely this summer. Uh, I, I remember how much pressure has put the approval of the US into the EU in order to accelerate the culture meat regulation. Um, I think, I mean, it, it's, it's great that, um, the US gave the green lights for, you know, the two cultivated meat companies because it certainly shows that one of, you know, that that massive market is, is, you know, it is, uh, it is, a, is behind it. But I think, you know, the FDA and, and, uh, the EU look at food safety in quite a different way. Um, and the way that, um, the dossiers are evaluated is also, uh, you know, different because in the, in the US, it's basically the applicant has built this safety narrative to say our product is safe. We believe it's safe based on X, Y, and Z. Um, and then the FDA are just reviewing it and then, you know, they, they agree whether it's safe or not. Um, where in the EU, it's, you know, it, it's different. So you're producing your, you're producing all your safety data, you're submitting it. And then it's, you know, very thoroughly scrutinized, um, by the European Food Safety Authority. Um, so it's, you know, obviously it's up to the applicant to build that safety narrative and say, we believe it's safe, but it's really EFSA that's concluding on whether or not, <laughs> not it's safe. Um, so I think it obviously it, it, it helps, um, that the F, you know, that the FDA has reviewed these dossiers and also it helps the fact that the dossiers, the public facing dossiers are available for people to look at. I think that, um, you know, that will help EFSA to see, um, what was in those particular dossiers and also see the questions that the FDA asked. But also it's very good for, um, the consumers because they can also um, access that uh, that dossier and see exactly what the product is or what it isn't, um, and and how the safety of that particular product was was assessed. Um, at the moment in Singapore, then the SFA are not publishing um, a public facing dossier. So I think you know whilst that's very beneficial to the applicant to keep as much information uh, as confidential as possible. I think it's not so great for the consumer because it's kind of, you know, building a wall and they, they see that things are approved, but they don't understand how it's been approved. Then we were mostly told that a major hurdle is the importance of meat companies and their influences at political level or like national or international, you can name it, but um, it may influence even the regulations of protein alternatives, I can imagine. 
Have you noticed this during your career so far? Uh, yes. I mean, I think um, in in the US and the EU, um, particularly the the traditional farming lobbies, um, you know, are starting to to make a lot of noise. Um, and you know, this is going to be problematic. Uh, for particularly for cultivated meat, I don't think they see plant proteins and uh, and the other alternative proteins as such a big threat. But I think for cultivated meat, um, then you know it it really is raised. It, it's almost is like direct competition because you know I, I I'm vegetarian myself, and there are some very good plant based uh, products, but they are not complete. You know they're not exactly the same experience as meat you know very close but not exactly the same experience but with cultivated meat you know the 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 offer is we are producing meat that's exactly the same as the meat you know and love so therefore it's a direct um you know indirect competition with you know traditional uh traditional farming so i think um yes we will definitely see it become more and more political. And I think there's a lot going on in the background, uh, particularly with, um, you know, with Italy and Romania and the more, uh, you know, the countries that have a richer tradition of, um, of, of farming, of traditional farming. Um, but I think again, it, it comes to having a conversation with these people, you know, explaining that yes, this t- technology we can produce meat that's very similar to, you know, the meat that you're producing, but actually we're a very long way off putting you out of business. <laughs> you know, and, and most cultivated meat companies I speak to, it's not their intention to put traditional farmers out of business. So I think it's, you know, t- having these conversations and reassuring them that technologically we're not there yet so you know there's no way that as of you know if we got cultivated meat approved in europe tomorrow it's not going to put anyone out of business um you know the amount of scale up that's necessary is still you know it's an incredible amount of (laughs) scaling up that's required to even be close to competing so i think it's important that um uh, you know that we have these conversations. What collaborations or partnerships are crucial uh, to to make the regulatory landscape uh, for proteins evolve? So I think um, something that's very important as an individual company is uh, you know getting to know the right people within your member state. Um, so, you know, whoever it is that's talking to the European Commission within your member states, try and identify that who they are and, you know, and, and have conversations with them. Um, and then also on an individual level, um, you know, joining industry groups. So there's Cellular Agriculture Europe, Food Fermentation Europe, Europa Bio you know, being a part of these organizations because there's a huge amount of work that these organizations are doing, speaking on behalf of industry, and they're going in, speaking to member states, speaking to the European Commission, um, speaking to the European Food Safety Authority, trying to 
pave a way um, to make things easier to obtain regulatory approval uh, in the EU particularly because it is the toughest nut to crack, you know, not only because of the very, very high level of regulatory scrutiny and safety uh, standards that we have, but also, you know, from a political point of view and the way that, you know, novel foods are authorized, it's, you know, it's complex because we need um, 55% of EU member states representing 65% of the EU population to vote to approve, you know, new novel foods. So, you know, that makes things very tricky. Um, so that's why it's so important to engage with, you know, the member states. In your career so far, what were the most significant challenges you faced? Um, actually, during your time as a regulatory director in the f- field of cultivated meat. Um, I mean, every <laughs> every day is a challenge because, you know, we're, we're trying to get these products approved without a clear regulatory, you know, without clear guidance, I would say. I mean, the, the frameworks are there, but absolute clear guidance um, from the regulators in terms of what they want to see and what they what they absolutely don't want to see. So I think it's a daily challenge um, trying to design, um, you know, the, the correct regulatory roadmap. Um, and each product is completely different. So, you know, even if we think about, I don't know, different beef products and you're working on a beef cell line, that beef cell line may have a different starting point in terms of the cell type and it may have a very different end point and then the production process itself it would be very different and very specific to that cell type so you know it's a unique challenge with each with each cultivated uh, meat company so I think um, in the absence of you know very very clear guidelines we're sort of feeling our way a little bit um, you know trying to trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can to show that these products are safe. Um, but also it's sometimes challenging because, um, you know, speaking to regulators is not always easy. I mean, in the in Singapore, Australia, New Zealand and the US, um, it's much easier to have um, pre-submission dialogue with the regulators so you can explain to them what your product is, what your regulatory approach is going to be and which studies you're going to perform and you can sort of have a nice conversation about it and receive some feedback but in the EU you're really going in blind um, because we have the the novel food guidance um, and EFSA offers general pre-submission advice but you can't get into the you know the details about your dossier so uh, you can't have that pre-submission consultation with them to say okay this is my product i'm thinking of doing x y and z do you see any red flags or you know would you like to see anything else so i think you know that's something we really want to push for in the eu because we think it's going to make a massive difference um to applicants but also to to efsa because in a way they then know what's coming so, you know, they can prepare themselves a little bit and think, oh, okay, so I remember that company and they're working with this and um, it, it can help them to to understand what the technology is and, and um, what kind of risk assessment they, they might need to apply. Can you provide uh, some insights in the most valuable leadership lessons you've learned through your career? 
Uh, the, the most, yes, um, leadership lessons for, for, for us and what, well, for me and what, um, what I have done in my career. So I have worked in many different roles. Um, but I think, you know, as a CEO in my previous job and in this current job, um, you know, it, it's, it's really, all about communication and 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 being uh being present and also leading by example so i think that they're sort of my my uh the things that i put in my playbook it's certainly you know leading by leading by example um and you know if i have created a policy or 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 <laughs> created something then i i need to follow those rules myself which is sometimes difficult um especially um when you're incredibly busy human being um so it's easy to to cut corners sometimes but i think you know being open being honest being flexible um and and leading by example um and really getting stuck in there uh you know being being the first one in the office last one last one to leave um i think that's you know that that's important to show uh to show leadership um and in terms of leadership with, with you know with, with the clients and and also leadership with um with uh, the regulatory authorities as well so you know we really need to show that we know exactly what we're talking about that we can do an excellent job on managing your project you know this is this is what you will expect from us. Um, this is how we're going to deliver it. And this is when we're going to deliver it. You know, I think they're very, very important um, parts of leadership when you're leading a project or when you're, you know, discussing things with, with regulators. Strategies, do you keep, yeah, do you employ to keep your team motivated, especially during challenging uh, periods of high pressure projects? I can imagine that, yeah, the, the the regulatory process that you describe is not an easy process, so you will get a lot of setbacks. Yes, and and it's it kind of it sort of stop start stop start stops up with lots of you know uh, peaks and troughs in workload. I mean, mostly it's uh, peaks to be honest, but um, it's not a consistent you know every day I'm going to be doing the same thing. Um, and in my in my previous uh, job with Penn and Tech Consulting, there was a change in um, the regulation. So the EU brought in the or the European Commission brought in the transparency regulation, um, and there was a cutoff of the twenty seventh of March twenty twenty one, when the transparency regulation would apply. And it had massive implications for novel food dossiers and other uh, regulated products in the food chain, because after that cutoff date, you then had to notify your studies to EFSA. You had to provide a public facing dossier. I mean, there were loads and loads of things. And so we, up until that point, until the 21st of, of uh, well, until that cutoff point, sorry, 27th of March, 2021, I think we submitted 46 dossiers. So we were working around the clock in order to meet that deadline to try and stop, you know, to try and save our clients from falling into the trap of the transparency regulation. So yeah, the team, you know, we were, we really dug deep. So everyone was 
very, very focused on that goal of helping our clients make sure that they avoided that, you know, the transparency regulation. Um, and it was, yeah, lots of very good and tight communication, lots of regular catch ups, um, lots of support, um, lots of buying them dinner <laughs> in the office, you know, just general, come on, we're a team, let's get through this as a team. And when it's all over, I'll take you all to a Michelin star restaurant and we can have a nice big party. So, you know, there was a, a, a an end goal in sight, but it was, yeah, it was very difficult period. Um, but we, we made it. So we did it and, and, um, we worked very solidly as a team and it was a, it was a great <laughs> experience when it was all over. We all sighed a big, uh, sigh of relief. Um, but after that, you know, with, with Atova, my, my current company, again, there's always tight deadlines because, you know, the, the clients need to get these dossiers in as quickly as possible. So, you know, we're always, pushing ourselves to make sure that we get all of the information we need in a timely way to build these dossiers and get them submitted because the sooner you submit them, the sooner you're going to get uh, the the approval to market your product. So um, it doesn't go away, even though there was that deadline um, in, in March in 2021, we haven't had that deadline or something like that again. Um, but yeah, I mean, each client has their own internal deadlines and you know we, we we have to have to meet them so hannah uh imagine this is a scenario uh you somebody knocks on your door and it's a younger version of yourself when uh, you just started in the regulatory area what top advice would you give to this young version of yourself that is not other that also so many other younger people right now that is hopping on this this area to succeed uh, in the regulatory space so i i think the the first piece of advice is be kind to yourself because you know it's a it's a very complex area and you can't expect to know everything overnight you know you have to you build the experience, build the knowledge, and you need to be patient. So, you know, don't give yourself a hard time if you don't know everything to start out with. Um, so I think that that's an important piece of advice that I wish I had uh, listened to because, you know, I used to give myself a very hard time about not knowing everything. Um, but how can you when you're, when you're new to something? Um, and then I think, you know, take the time that you need to learn the area and and really learn learn your craft and learn how to apply it um not only from what you think makes sense but really think about what the client needs so you know how as a regulatory consultant you know it's about what the client needs so really putting yourself in the position of of the client um And not being too academic about it. So, um, I, I'd not long finished my PhD once I got into, to regulatory. So I was very much coming at regulatory, regulatory from an academic perspective. But, you know, uh, it's a very different discipline regulatory compared to academia as well. So I think, um, you know, sometimes logic doesn't apply. 
in in, uh, in in the regulatory world and regulations are often not particularly logical. So I think that's a good piece of advice as well. So when you're coming from a scientific background and you're thinking, hang on, this doesn't make any sense at all. This is not logical. You have to just let it go because you cannot influence um, or, you know, you can influence, but you can't make changes to the regulations um, because, you know, that's not your job. Your job is to read the regulations, know the regulations, interpret the regulations. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes they are completely illogical and there's not much <laughs> you can do about it. So I think, um, yeah, thinking from the client's perspective and also coming at it from, you know, getting your regulatory hat on, not your academic hat. Future, how would, do you see the alternative protein landscape evolving in the next like five to 10 years, both in Europe and say, let's globally, because we also speak globally in this conversation? Um, I mean, I think it really depends on, you know, the policy decisions that are, that are made. You know, if we, if we look at Singapore, they have their 30 by 30 policy whereby they want to produce 30% of their protein demand domestically by 2030. So therefore there's, you know, a great, a, a much greater impetus on, on alternative proteins because I think their last cow died, you know, two years ago or something like that. I mean, they're not able to produce, uh, tradition, you know, protein in a traditional agriculture way because they just don't have the the land um and you know they they just don't have that uh, that setup to you know to to farm animals so i think you know when we're seeing it it's a policy decision um then we're seeing things move much faster so i think it's going to be really interesting to see you know what happens with the EU's protein strategy because it's incredible and the farm to fork um you know strategy because there's a lot of great stuff in the protein strategy um but we just want to see you know to see that implemented because that's going to have far reaching effects on 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 the whole industry um you know within that protein strategy particularly they um they say that novel foods should be assessed solely on safety so that means, you know, you're taking all the political stuff out of it, which is great. Uh, and also that the, the whole novel food approval process should be reviewed, um, to try and make things more streamlined and, 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 you know, and, and make things more predictable and quicker for, for applicants. So I think, you know, those two things are amazing. So if, um, they stick to that, then it's going to make a huge difference. Um, and then sort of more globally, there's a lot of exciting things happening, you know, in China. So China have, have written in cultivated meat into their, you know, into their, I think it's their five year plan or 20 year plan. Um, so I think if the, the, the Chinese government are behind cultivated meat, then, you know, really exciting things could happen there. Um, um and in the US yeah let's see let's see what happens i think politically <laughs> it's uh, it, it could be challenging depending on what happens in the next uh, election um so yes let's let's see what technological or yeah technological advancements are you more excited about that are propelling the alternative protein industry 
Um, the technological advances. I mean, I think there's there's so much that can be done um, with precision fermentation. I'm a big fan of precision fermentation. So I think, um, you know, that's an amazing technology that um, we can use for all sorts of uh, food production. Um, also, molecular farming, I think that's really amazing. That's awesome. So I think, um, you know, farming plants that have animal proteins already, you know, in the plants. I mean, I think that's amazing from a technological perspective. From a regulatory perspective, it's incredibly complex. Um, so I think. Again, it's um, finding a way that regulation can keep pace with innovation. I think that's um, you know that, that's an important part. So we're seeing all of these amazing technologies, but how are we going to get them to market? Um, and then what else on the technological front? You know, cultivated meat is incredible, but there's still a lot of work um, to be to be done in terms of uh, in in terms of scaling up. I mean, I'm not a, an expert on scaling up, but, you know, it's just what I hear um, with the, you know, all the conferences I go to and all of the companies that I work with. Um, so I think, yeah, that's obviously um, a limitation, but, you know, there's a lot of very, very smart people, much smarter than me that are working on these challenges. So I'm very hopeful that we will, um, you know, that they will bear fruit and we'll see these technologies um get to market and just the small part that I play is showing that they're safe. Then we move on to our traditional questions, which is that our previous guest leaves the question to our next guest. And for you, the previous guest left the following question. What can, when can we expect the first um, like consumer products on, for cultivated meat and can we also expect that these products can be enhanced by certain nutrients to get to the certain outcomes that we want to? Okay, so the first part, when will we, we see consumer products um, in Europe? Um, I think we're looking at, so say the first dossier goes in tomorrow. Um, I would say we're looking at two to three years um, from the first dossier to go in until we see an approval. If we look at the example of insects, so it took sort of three to four years for the first insect protein products to be approved. So I think we can use that as a as a rough estimate for, for cultivated meat. Obviously, we hope it would be much quicker because um, in the legislation, the approval time from submission to approval the timelines uh, in the legislation, it should be around one and a half years. So we're always hoping that it's going to be one and a half years, but uh, very rarely do we see it actually happening in that time frame. Um, but the good news is, you know, EFSA is really preparing themselves well for these cultivated meat dossiers. So they've had a lot of stakeholder engagement this year. Um, they've held three events um, this year. Um, basically on, on cultivated meat with the purpose of, of uh, updating their knowledge and engaging with industry. So I definitely feel that they're getting ready um, to evaluate the cultivated meat dossiers. So really, you know, it's, it's now up to the cultivated meat companies to get these dossiers in. Um, and then we will hopefully see um, products approved in the next three to four years. Um and then in terms of the nutritional profile, 
the fortification of food is highly regulated. So, um, you know, it makes, it makes it tricky to, uh, I mean, you can fortify food, but ideally the fortification would come during the production process so that the final product, um, the, the, the meat, uh, or the seafood or whatever product you're producing already has a nutritional profile similar to, to conventional meat. Because with novel foods, the key, um, one of the key assessment parameters is that the product is not nutritionally disadvantageous. So if you're placing a product on the market that's going to be replacing another product, that it's not, um, nutritionally disadvantageous compared to the, to the, um, comparator. Okay. And another question that we normally do, maybe this is more personal and more difficult, Hannah, but what is your favorite food or this, uh, you can be as open as you want the question, but you have to say something. Oh, um, my favorite dish. Um, oh, um, 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 I really, really love toad in the hole, which is a very British, uh, uh, dish. So it's basically, um, a batter, like a pancake batter, and then you cook sausages in it. And it's called toad in the hole. Uh, and it's amazing. I mean, I'm vegetarian, but and it, you can make it with um, with vegetarian sausages as well, and it's really good. Um, so that's definitely um, something that I miss a lot from uh, from being at home. Um, so that's one of my favorites. And then tiramisu, I absolutely love tiramisu. Um, I had an amazing tiramisu in Parma last week when I was visiting uh, visiting EFSA. So. Um, so that's great. And that's why I really want precision fermentation to work. And I want these, you know, these um, dairy proteins um, that are, you know, recombinant dairy proteins to to become available so I can eat tiramisu guilt free. So that's that's the aim <laughs> uh, to see that happen. Well, I think you have here to... Um fans for tiramisu as well big fans i bet you haven't tried toad in the hole no no <laughs> no we didn't <laughs> if you can send us a recipe we will try <laughs> i will do that and but then then anna then i would want to thank you for this really really insightful conversation and you gave a lot of insights that are i think for me and a lot of listeners out there is totally new uh Problems that needed to be, I think, to give a stage to think about also on the regular regulation aspects. Because if we want to yeah, make a better future, this is a field that uh, needs to be looked at as well, right? And it's for sure in the cultivated meat section. Uh, I hope that the yeah that the process will go on and that you <laughs> will not face another moment of providing uh, forty six uh, doc- documentaries at once. <laughs> Thank you for for this conversation and I wish you all the best also for your team. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.